morning to each one of you. I am Doug Batchelder. I serve with TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission, but I shouldn't have to say, introduce who TEAM is to this congregation. You are just a wonderful team supporting church and have been for many, many years and have had impact around the globe as a consequence of that. Karanda Mission Hospital is one of the dear places in my heart. I can recall when I was there several years ago getting up early in the morning with our team board chair at the time <clears throat> to go and, and have our own devotions in the chapel at Karanda. And when we got there, and it was like 5.30 in the morning, the place was already full of people that were singing and worshiping, praising God, sharing scripture, and I got a little bit of taste of heaven there at Karanda. So thank you for your support. When I pulled out of the driveway this morning, um, I just started down the street and realized I did not have my watch with me. So I went back into the house, and my wife, Jane, uh, who doesn't normally travel with me when I guest preach, not because she doesn't like my preaching, I think, um, but because she has a, a, a very important women's ministry at our church Sunday mornings. She teaches about 50 women in a ladies' Bible study. And uh, so Jane says, what are you back for so early? I said, I forgot my watch. She says, oh, you don't want to do that. Have mercy on your congregation. <laughs> I'm making no promises. Turn, please, in your Bibles to the, to the Gospel of Luke. You say, are you going to preach the same sermon that you preached when you were here before? No, I'm not, but we are going to return to the same text. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Now, if you recall from last time together, that is the second time in the Gospels that this that we call the Lord's Prayer is recorded for us, though I think it is better named the disciples' prayer because it really is the example prayer or model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples on two occasions. Of course, the other is found for us in Matthew chapter 6, so I invite you to turn there this morning as we are going to be looking at both portions of Scripture and uh, visiting it from the perspective of how this prayer teaches us to set our priorities. Let's begin by saying the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As I mentioned last time, that benediction at the end really is not unbiblical, though it's not actually found in the text until later years in the Gospels. But it comes out of 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. My question this morning is this. What organizes your life? You say, well, I'm still working on trying to organize my life. Some of us are list makers, and some of us hate making lists. I always make lists, especially if I'm going to go out and run errands, 
and they get into the store and realize my list is still on my desk. And uh, so I you know, call Jane and I say, could you take a picture of it and send it to me, text it to me, so I know what I'm supposed to be doing here. We need to organize our life. Sometimes our life is organized by the responsibilities that we have, our work schedule, our family responsibilities, shopping, caring for children, caring for our parents, doing laundry, paying bills, getting the car service. These are the normal things that happen in our lives, and they can consume most of our lives. They are the normal nuts and bolts of living. In fact, Jesus recognized this in Matthew chapter 24, for he says there, beginning in verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like it was in the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. You say, well, I don't see a problem there. Let's talk about that. There is nothing wrong with work and eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and family life and paying bills and going to our responsibilities that we have each day, whether as an employee or a volunteer. But notice one thing, that those things that Jesus mentioned there in Matthew chapter 24 all only relate to our temporary life on earth. It reveals an inadequate set of priorities. And that's why we want to return to the disciples' prayer this morning. Because within that prayer, we find a set of priorities that should inform and energize the choices that we make as we live our lives, not as mere earthlings, but as those people who live with an eternal set of priorities. The Lord's Prayer can be evaluated in several different ways. So, you know, normally preachers have, what, three points in a poem? I'm going to do away with the poem so I can have four points. So we're going to take a look this morning at the content of the prayer, the context of the prayer, the structure of the prayer, and the priorities of the prayer. Notice in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6, that Jesus said, pray then like this, or in this manner, or in this way. He wants us to notice the manner of the prayer as well as the content of the prayer. Last time we looked primarily at the content of the prayer. We really didn't get any farther than the first two words, our Father. We thought of all the different ways that God could have taught us to pray and how to address him when we do pray, he chose the term Father as our way of addressing him. Jesus didn't say Jehovah. That was a name for God the Jews never even spoke. And when they wrote it, they left out all the vowels because they considered it just too holy a word to use in our conversation about God. He could have used the term El Elyon, O Great One. Oh, mighty one. Certainly God is great and God is mighty. He's omnipotent. But that's not the term that Jesus said when he gave us a model for prayer. He didn't even use the term Lord, the master. Although that would have been appropriate as well because he is indeed our Lord and master. Instead, he says, our father. A term of relationship, a term of endearment, a term 
of peace, really. A term of security, of knowing that our Father loves us and wants conversation with us. The content of the prayer identifies who he is. The content of the prayer also goes on to identify where he is. He is our Father who is in heaven. I've got two dads in heaven. I have my heavenly father and I have my natural father. My natural father has been in heaven now, will be 20 years this Tuesday. I miss him every day. I think of him often. But he is completely inaccessible to me. That's part of the pain of losing a loved one, is the fact that we no longer enjoy the daily relationship with him. Not true of our father who is in heaven. It is through prayer that we maintain relationship with him. He wants our conversation. Though he is in heaven, he is entirely accessible to us. So the content of the prayer teaches us who he is. It teaches us where he is. It teaches us what he is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He is holy. We get a little glimpse of heaven, a snapshot, if you will, in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. In several places, we get a glimpse in words of what heaven is like, and the one word that comes to my mind when I think about what is revealed about the throne of God in heaven is the, the, the hosts of heaven all saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He's not just our Father, but He is our Father who is holy. That means He is unlike anything or anyone else. Who He is is set apart from all other beings that exist. I always cringe a little, little when I hear somebody refer to God as the big guy or the man upstairs. Because I think that's really disrespectful of all that he is. He is indeed Jehovah. He is indeed El Elyon. He is indeed the Lord of hosts. He is indeed holy. And he is also our Father, and we get to know him, be loved by him, and live with him forever because of his grace. That's a reason to worship him. But we deserve nothing of his grace but only his judgment. The content of the prayer teaches us who he is, where he is, what he is. But you know, this morning we want to think about the general context of this prayer. We know that the Sermon on the Mount happened early on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as though Jesus is announcing up front to everyone, to the crowds at large, what life in the kingdom is like. And he draws a stark contrast in the Sermon on the Mount between those who have an authentic relationship with their creator and those who have a cultural, made-up made relationship with that creator. The hypocrites, the scribes, the Pharisees who looked great on the outside, who met all of the cultural expectations of the culture around them, but did not know God. 
Jesus' words were a thunderclap of truth as he preached that Sermon on the Mount for everyone to hear. So it really has great impact. It really has great importance when we read in verse 7, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles. Or back in verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray only so that they get noticed by their peers. God ignores them because of their pride. He says, verse 9, pray then in this way. So the context of that first time Jesus taught us how to pray was in a sermon that was preached to the general population of his culture. The second time he teaches us how to pray, it's in response in Luke chapter 11 to that inner circle of men, his disciples, who came to him and, and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he basically teaches them exactly the same thing that he taught in Matthew chapter 6. So the context of the prayer is both instructive to the general audience and to the individual follower of Jesus. So that leads us to an appreciation or need to notice the structure of the prayer. The prayer divides neatly into two parts. Take a look at it. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The focus is upon God. The whole first half of the prayer is devoted to giving our attention to God, who he is, where he is, what he is, and what his purpose and plan is for life on earth. You see, if we don't begin with God, we're going to go off the rails. If our life is not organized around who he is, what he is, where he is, and what his plan is, we're going to walk in our own way. So as you and I not only pray, but organize the priorities of our life, begin with God. The second half of the prayer relates to you and me in terms of our daily life. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Don't lead us into temptation. The need for daily bread it is okay to talk to God about the basic needs that sustain our life. The need for forgiveness? Wow. That is the basic need for our to have a right relationship with God himself. Because we fail. We sin. We sin by either doing things we shouldn't do, saying things we shouldn't say, or by leaving undone things that should be done and not speaking things that should be spoken or we sin in our heart, in our attitudes. But all of us who follow Jesus will sin. But do we ever, as John and Alexis in his epistle, come to him and confess our sin 
own up to it. Not just tell God I'm sorry, but say, I was wrong when I, fill in the blank, and I need your forgiveness. You see, confession is simply agreeing with God about our actions and attitudes and obtaining his forgiveness as a consequence. But there's something else very important in this model prayer as it relates to the issue of forgiveness. It's not just the forgiveness we need in our relationship with God, but it's the forgiveness we need to grant in our relationships with others. Because all of us, if we're still breathing, have had people who have done us wrong. And we sometimes carry those hurts with us like a ball and chain around our soul which weighs us down and keeps us from running the race with endurance. Because bitterness and hatred and ill will sucks the spiritual joy and energy from our life and makes us unfruitful as believers. I don't know if I told you this story before. My dad was a pastor. I grew up in a pastor's home, so I'm a preacher's kid. And I recall a couple of years before my dad went home to be with the Lord, that he and I were talking pastor stuff. That's one of the things I miss about my dad, you know. I missed his counsel as a seasoned and wise pastor. And we were talking about this issue of, of bitterness and how it's such a problem in many churches and had been a problem in the churches he had pastored. And he told me of this one individual who asked for counsel and came to him, and they were discussing the situation. My dad kind of put the finger in what the problem was, said to this person, I think there's a lot of bitterness in your life that's motivating your decisions and train-wrecking the relationships that are in your life, keeping you from having joy. This person began to weep. said, Pastor Ken, it's true. This person went to a drawer in their desk and actually took out a journal where they had kept a written record of the wrongs that had been done to them. It was in many respects more important than her Bible in terms of setting the priorities and the tenor of her life. She confessed that to God that day. And she and my dad went out in the backyard and burned it. So it was no longer accessible. Now you might not have a journal, and I might not have a journal, that we have written down the wrongs that have happened in our life, those things that have caused us genuine hurt. But maybe it's etched on our heart and carved in our soul. Jesus said, don't expect forgiveness 
when you pray, unless you're willing to forgive. You see, you and I are creatures of God's grace. Were it not for His grace, we would live under condemnation here on earth and condemnation that lasts for eternity. God did not have to forgive us. But because God so loved the world that He gave His only one Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And just as the thief on the cross experienced His grace in the last moments of His life, He's been even more gracious to you and me by extending His grace to us long before that last moment comes. What are we doing with that gift of grace? Hurts are real. I don't diminish them. Divorces, difficulties with neighbors and family members, employers and employees, people that have cheated us, people that have done us wrong. None of that compares to our individual and collective wrong that we have done to the righteousness of God as sinners. But Jesus dealt with that problem on the cross. And he offers grace to all who would confess their sin and embrace him by faith. It's important for us to note that when Jesus taught us to pray, he included the issue of forgiveness. This structure is no accident. While Luke chapter 11 records the abbreviated version of the disciples' prayer, given well after the Sermon on the Mount's version had been already taught. The fact that the basic structure in Luke chapter 11 is identical to the structure in Matthew chapter 6 teaches us that this is a model that needs to be kept. The importance of our Understanding its structure ought to inform the priorities that we make in our prayer life and in our daily life. Notice there in Matthew chapter 6 <clears throat> that in the last part of the section that focuses on God, it is, your, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first few lines of the prayer focus on God in heaven and his glory and his holiness. But then God makes it clear and Jesus makes it clear in this model prayer that what exists in heaven by way of love, holiness, righteousness, mercy, needs to come here to earth. This is literally a down-to-earth prayer that helps us set down-to-earth priorities as people in his kingdom. So the structure of the prayer makes that transition from just focus on heaven to focus on earth. 
Think about that for a moment. Your relationship with Jesus Christ, my relationship with Jesus Christ, is vertical. It's us and Him. But that relationship has profound implications upon the horizontal everyday life that we live. Bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth is serious, but also joyful business. It's the reason we're here. Jesus modeled this in the course of his ministry, didn't he? Jesus didn't just preach to the friendly crowds. He didn't just hang out with the people that were his friends. There are many examples. I just I flipped through my Bible in preparation for this. I love the Gospels. I, I, just, I, I just come back to the Gospels over and over and over again because I get to see Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth. Which is why he called 12 men into relationship and said, follow me. I'm going to change your priorities from being fishers of fish to being fishers of men. They dropped everything and followed him. But he didn't stop there. He went and preached on the mountainside, that Sermon on the Mount. He had already done enough good things that people were attracted to him to come and hear his message. He fed the masses, the 5,000 plus the women and children on one occasion, the 4,000 plus the women and children on another occasion. This was a message for everyone. The kingdom of heaven on earth is intended for all people. For God so loved the world. But it wasn't just a message for the masses. There was Zacchaeus. A turncoat chief is how his countrymen saw him. He, play, he played for the other team. He was a collaborator with Rome. He collected their taxes, gave Caesar what he expected, and pocketed a lot for himself. Jesus did not wag his finger at him, but said, Zacchaeus, let's do lunch. We need to talk. Jesus cared for the people nobody else cared about. Which is why he healed lepers who were made to live out on the edge of town. They weren't allowed in to the rest of society. They were the outcasts of the outcasts. And Jesus healed them even though on one occasion only one in ten even bothered to say thank you. Jesus comforted the grieving. That really impresses me. It's hard to enter into the grief of other people. It's emotionally difficult and exhausting. I say that as a pastor who 
has come alongside many times loved ones who have lost a father or mother or sibling or spouse or child. Worst of all, a newborn. But bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth means we go to the difficult places, enter into the difficult circumstances, love the unlovable, comfort the grieving, feed the hungry, take care of the unborn. We do the tough stuff. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth, not just to the Jews. This blew the mind of those in his culture. He had a conversation, a saving conversation with the Syrophoenician woman. She was a Gentile. He was blowing out the cultural norms of the day because a man in those days didn't talk to a woman. She wasn't worth it. Jesus says, oh, yes, she is. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. Jesus said, I want you in my kingdom. Jesus dealt with the immoral. Remember that occasion when the woman was being stoned? Jesus shows up. The hypocrites all thought he ought to pick up a stone and join them in the fun. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the earth. I think he wrote names and then looked at specific men. Because he knew in act or in thought they were as guilty as she. Because he said, if you have no sin, in this category, I think is what he implied, then you throw the first stone. Stones dropped to the ground, and people walked away. Jesus loved the immoral people in his culture. Do we have any of those in our culture? You bet your boots we do. But are we stoners? Or are we grace givers? That's a hard one. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven on earth by the way he loved and the way he lived. And it made people uncomfortable. It made the status quo of those who presumed that they were religious and right with God think he's doing it all wrong. No, he was doing exactly what God had planned for him to do. He was so committed to this that he gave his life for that. 
He spent his life bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth in tangible ways. And he showed his utter commitment of love by going to the cross and taking the punishment for your sin and mine. But he rose again. And he's coming back. And that kingdom will be on earth. But the prayer is for the here and now. It doesn't say, thy kingdom come a thousand years from now. Thy kingdom come next week when I've already fulfilled all of my plans and priorities that I want to do. Thy kingdom come when I'm finally retired. And I feel like I now can, you know, devote myself to kingdom stuff. No. Jesus said, the kingdom is among you. Because the king was present. And so this teaches us some of the priorities of prayer and And we want to mention these and remember these and live these out. And one of the priorities is that God's kingdom is the focus of God's activity on earth and everywhere else. He's the king of it all. He is the most high God. But that king, kingdom, comes with profound realities. You see, sometimes we talk about the kingdom of heaven as though it were a fairy tale. A nice story makes us feel good, gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside. Jesus made it real. It's a real kingdom. And to be a real kingdom means it has a king. And this kingdom has subjects. Every being in the kingdom is his subject. Some are in rebellion and some are in relationship with him. And if you and I are in relationship with him, we need to demonstrate that we want to live by his kingdom values. We want to live by his kingdom priorities. We want to feed We want to reach out to those outside our culture. We want to comfort the grieving. We want to heal the sick. We want to forgive the sinners. Even though that may make some others uncomfortable. He's a real king. And his is a real kingdom. It's real in as much as it's not only heavenly and spiritual, but the prayer teaches us is intended to be earthly and physical as well. And it is infinitely eternal. God's desire is to have the values and character of his heavenly kingdom be evidenced and common here on earth. How does, it do, how does that happen? through we, his people, who are citizens of this kingdom already. But is that happening in our life? 
Are God's kingdom priorities ours? In the Sermon on the Mount, we have a good indication as to what it looks like to set kingdom priorities in how we live. First is to identify ourselves as citizens of this kingdom. You know, we live in a time and place and a culture in which there is a genuine identity crisis going on. Whether it be about gender, ethnicity, race, politics, even what it means to be human. People are all about their identity. But what does it mean to have the identity and live it out as a kingdom of heaven person? on earth. The kingdom of heaven is priority one. And so our first priority in terms of our own identity is not whether we're white or some other race, not whether we have this ethnicity or that ethnicity, whether or not we're male or female, whether or not we're Democrat or Republican or something else. Our primary identity is to be kingdom of heaven people living heaven life on earth. That affects our attitudes. We've already talked about forgiveness. But as you take a look at the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also talks about fasting and praying, which is really a demonstration of our humility before God. He also talks in the Sermon on the Mount about where our treasure is. He talks about our funds. He says, where your treasure is, guess what? I'm going to find your heart there. What do we treasure? Our treasure is really one of three resources that each one of us has. Time, unrenewable. Talent, usable. Treasure, serviceable. But he also talks not only about the need for forgiveness and the need for fasting as it demonstrates kingdom values, but the use of our funds and our walk of faith. For Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 32, he says, Don't be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you drink or what you will wear. And we're familiar with the passage of Scripture. You see, we can organize our life, we can set our priorities by faith or by fear. We can walk through life fretting or we can walk through life trusting God. Kingdom people, trust this perfect king. If we're going to be kingdom people, kingdom of heaven people on earth, we need to be part of the process of seeing this kingdom come on earth by our actions and attitudes individually and collectively. So we need to ask ourselves, when I set my priorities, do they reflect first kingdom values? I began by asking what organizes your life and priorities. It could just be eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. 
And there's nothing wrong with that, unless it's all you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you taught us not only how to pray, but you taught us and showed us how to be kingdom of heaven people here on earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.